You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 5, 15 to 29. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will, his, will he show them so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me his eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Um, when it comes to sermons and preaching in general, I think there's a tendency that... That there's a little bit of pragmatist in all of us. We, we like the sermons that tell us, okay, when I leave here, here's what I'm supposed to do. Like, just tell me what to do, preacher, and, and I'll, I'll go home, I'll do it, I'll start it, I'll do it. Whatever you tell me, I'm just eager to do that. We like that. We like a practical sermon. And there are times when we come to passages that are loaded with all kinds of implications, like all kinds of commands that say, go do this, right? Because of this, because of the gospel, go now. Because of the indicative of the gospel, there are imperatives that flow out of it. And so there's, there's really no limit to how many times or, or how often tons of passages that are just dense with, here's what you do. This is what it looks like to live like a Christian. Now, other times we come to passages that are like ours today, that seem to be pretty light on the actions. Um, passages that don't tell us what to do, but rather what to believe. It's full of heavy 
propositional truths, things that are declarative, things that are announcing what is true, what is reality. And when we come to these passages, um, sometimes we're like, okay, great, but, but what do we do now? Now, I, I want to set this up so we understand that, that the passage that we come into is very theological. I mean, this is perhaps maybe one of the most theologically um, saturated passages in all of Scripture. We get introduced, I mean, there's two major doctrines here that volumes and volumes of books have been spent uh, writing. Um, there's been hours and hours of lectures on these two topics, and, and one of them is the economy of the Trinity. Like, so we, we just sang about it. We praise, praise the Trinity, God three in one, praise the Father, praise the Son, Holy Spirit. Well, how does the Holy Spirit work, or how does the Trinity work? What, what is that exactly? How do we make sense of that? And how does the Trinity work? So the, we're introduced to the economy of the Trinity. And on top of that, we're introduced uh, to the, the theological concept of the eschatological judgment, which means at the end times, there will be the final day, there will be a judgment where we all stand before Jesus at his throne and have to give an account that there's judgment. So these two massive doctrines are presented here, which tells us that this passage is very, very important. In fact, J.C. Ryle says um, that there may not be a more important passage in all of Scripture than what we see here in John chapter 5. John MacArthur calls this the holy of holies of John's gospel. This thing is, is the gooey, caramel, nougaty center of John's God is so crucial for us. It's the best part, yet so often it gets overlooked. Now, the reason for that is because the rest of John is pretty epic. You got stories like the, the woman at the well that, that just, that kind of captures our imagination. It's a, an incredible story. Um, and so, so vivid, you see it, you hear it. You, it's almost like you're there and you're seeing that unfold before you. Other statements, like, like we'll get into here in chapter six of these I am statements that Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, like all those things that Jesus says. All of these epic passages are great, incredible, but tend to eclipse what's going on here. And what's going on here is so significant. It's, it's one of the longest monologues that we have. In fact, it, it started last week with the healing of the sky at, at the pool, and then this week, and then next week actually is a continuation of this whole dialogue that Jesus, it's a long monologue that's full of, uh, of propositional truths that Jesus is bearing witness to himself. Now, we've seen throughout John's gospel already several different people bearing witness to Jesus. John the Baptist is one of them proclaiming about who this is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You've got the Samaritan woman who's saying, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ who's come, right? And so you see people bearing witness to Jesus, but this is Jesus bearing witness to himself. It's a self-revelation. He's showing us in his own words who he is, and he's doing it by way of expressing his relationship to God, his Father. It's very important. Now, with this heavy theological stuff, with the density of the theological stuff that's going on here, I don't want to, and I've said words that you're probably like, eyes are glazed over already and checked out, and I want to bring you back in here. I'm not, we're not going to do that. We could do that, and it would be a worthwhile endeavor to study the economy of the Trinity, to study the eschatological judgment, and we'll see some of that flare up through this sermon. But really what I want to do is simplify our aim this morning. If you remember those little invitation cards that are scattered throughout the building, which I hope you grab a couple every week and, and make it a point to hand it out to people as you go along your way, 
the, the tagline of this series, as, as we're inviting people, is, is, is the question, who is Jesus and why does it matter? If there's ever a passage that answers this question, it's this passage right here. We're, we're getting to the heart of the question, who is Jesus and why does it matter? Now, I was talking earlier about wanting things to be um, applicable as far as tell me what to do, the application, the pragmatics of things. Um, and here's why this text is important. If you don't understand what Jesus says here in John chapter 5, if you don't believe these propositional Jesus uh, truths that Jesus is proclaiming, then any and all sermon applications that you will ever hear in your entire life are useless. It's like arranging chairs on the, the Titanic. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you do. If you miss this, everything else is useless. And another way to say this is that what Jesus says in this passage is so important we can't miss this. It's so important that it invokes all Christian applications from here. So this is the fountainhead of where all applications flow out of. And so today, as we jump into the text, I'm asking that the Lord would give us understanding, that the Lord would grant us the ability to see, to hear, and to believe Jesus is who he says he is, and that God would help us to live rightly. That's it. Who is Jesus why does it matter? As we come to our passage, now we're actually going to dive and jump into the text. If you want to open up to John chapter 5, uh, we pick up where we left off last week. We, if you were here with us last week, there was this, this healing along, uh, along a poolside in, in uh, Bethesda. You have a guy that's been um, sick or infirm for 38 long years, and Jesus just on a random Saturday morning walks up to him and says, uh, pick up your bed, walk, and miraculously the guy does grabs his bed, walks away. And he walks from the poolside, which would have been outside of Jerusalem's gates, and he goes into the city of Jerusalem around the temple to worship on the Sabbath day. And as he's in the temple area, the, the Pharisees stop him. They're, they're, they're troubled by what this guy is doing. He's, he's walking on the Sabbath. He's not just walking. He's carrying his bed mat that Jesus told him to carry. Now, in the eyes of the Pharisees, this is like, this is sacrilegious. This, this guy is, he is a rule breaker to the max. In, in their eyes, this guy, by picking up his mat and walking, he's breaking one of the 39 man-made Sabbath laws that the Pharisees, that the Jews had constructed. Now, they, they, we don't have these laws. They're not laws from God, these 39 that I'm speaking of specifically. But the reason why these 39 laws were built was because God gave us the fourth commandment, which is to uh, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so what these religious people did, they, they built, so trying to protect the fourth commandment, they built around it a hedge of, of dozens of other command, commandments that, that if you obey these outer hedges, then you won't violate the fourth commandment. So they think. And what they've done in their own eyes is they've elevated these 39 man-made laws to the same status as God's fourth commandment that, that when they see somebody breaking it, they are just indignant. They are ready to pounce. And so they do. They see this guy who, you know, the shocking part should be that he just got healed, but instead they're upset that he's walking with his mat. And so these guys, they, they corner him. They ask him, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he can't give an answer as to who it was that healed him or why he's doing this. Um, and so he's let go, right? He, he, the Pharisees stop him and they let him go. And then he later runs into Jesus. And then after he runs into Jesus, 
he goes back to the Pharisees. He goes back to the religious leaders to tattle on Jesus, right? Because they're concerned about who, who did this to you because not only are you breaking the rule, but whoever did this, whoever healed you is also breaking these rules. And so we see in verse 15, here it is. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him, tattletale. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, Earlier in the story, we've seen how Jesus and the Pharisees are in conflict with one another. Um, they, they're butting heads, there's friction, there's conflict between them, really from the beginning of his ministry. And now we see that the anger of the Pharisees, it's not just conflict, it's not just that, that they don't appreciate Jesus, the anger of the Pharisees now shifts where they were at first mad with this guy who was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Now, he, now they've taken all of that anger and they've, they've pointed it towards Jesus who they've been mad at all along and now it escalates to persecution all because Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. Now, this idea of persecution, is it just mean that they're, like, they're separate and, and the Pharisees are grumbling about Jesus and they, you know, they, they're looking down their nose at him? Like, there's actually conflict going on here. There's actually face-to-face conflict going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. They are confronting Jesus here with these accusations. They are harassing Jesus in a public fashion. And what they do here, as they're persecuting Jesus, what they're doing here, and we'll see this moving in, is is that they are bringing a public charge against Jesus. They are publicly accusing Jesus of doing something that is not allowed. Now, you would think that the authority of, of the religious leaders of the day would be intimidating, that Jesus would be like, okay, these guys clearly don't like me. The mob is on their side. Um, they've got clout. They've got authority. I'm, I'm just going to kind of back away and do my thing in private. But that's not at all the case. When Jesus enters into conflict with the religious leaders, he is not intimidated. Jesus doesn't cower. He doesn't back down. It's because Jesus cares most about the truth. And he is the truth. And the thing that he is testifying to Today, and what he's saying here is the truth about himself. And so Jesus takes a stand for the truth and goes head to head with some of the most powerful people of that day. And as Jesus takes a stand, he gives a defense, really. The the language that's used here when it says that Jesus answered them, um, it, it, it really gives us the imagery uh, of like a defense in court being offered. Somebody brings a, a charge against him and Jesus is responding with his defense. It's, it's, it really is this sort of uh, debate kind of setting. And so Jesus gives a defense for why he does what he does and how he does what he does in verse 17. And Jesus answered them. He gave his defense saying, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, this might seem like a strange response to us as modern readers, because um, what, Jesus, like what would make more sense to us if, it, if Jesus were to go to take on the religious leaders and their bogus rules? Instead of saying what he said, say, hey, come on, guys, your 39 laws are absolutely bogus. You're telling a guy that he can't walk with his mat the day that he was healed on the Sabbath? Like, are you kidding me? He, he doesn't go after the bogus laws. And maybe our impulse would also be to like go for a personal attack. Like Jesus, attack them. Call these religious leaders out. Because here we have, um, we have the leaders who are doing all of the sermon applications that they've ever heard in their life, but their hearts are far from God. 
And this is what the problem is with pragmatism, religious pragmatism, is that it's easy to become a freedom-robbing legalist. It's easy to become more obsessed about the rules and maintaining them than it is what God really truly wants from me, which is a contrite heart, a heart of worship and praise and adoration. Jesus could have taken on their laws. He could have taken them on. But instead, Jesus answers and asserts this verse, and in it contains two shocking and profound truths. Now, the first thing is that Jesus is settling a big debate. Now, you might not be aware of this. In fact, I don't think I was truly aware of this until I started my study this week. Jesus is settling a big-time debate in the Jewish world. This is like um, Tom Brady. There was recently a documentary about it's football season, guys, so you get ready for all these football analogies. Tom Brady recently did like a, a Man in the Rita, a documentary about his, his life, his career. And uh, in his career in 2001, they were playing the Oakland Raiders, which is my team. Um, the New England Patriots, the Oakland Raiders were playing 2001 in a playoff game. And this play happened where Tom Brady was going back for pass. It's snowy out, huge, huge game on the line. And he goes and it's, there's like a strip sack that happens. Charles Woodson comes off the edge, knocks the ball out. It looks like a fumble. It's ruled as a fumble. They recovered. If that would have been the case, the Raiders would have won. Woo, onto the Super Bowl. But the referees ruled it, the tuck rule, that, that he was pulling the ball in so it wasn't technically a fumble. And so that's ultimately got a rule. So long story short, there's been long debate. Was it a fumble? Was it not a fumble? Was it a fumble? Was it not a fumble? And, and really to this day, until Tom Brady in this documentary basically said, it was a fumble, and he admitted it. The Raiders should have been in the Super Bowl. So Tom Brady settles the debate. Jesus does it too today. He settles the debate. Now, what's the debate? What's the debate that the Jews have been stewing on for so long? And it revolves, it revolves around this. Is God obligated to keep the fourth commandment in the same way that we are? Is God obligated to keep the Sabbath in the same way that we are commanded to keep, honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy? Now, I don't have time to unpack the different sides. Um, there, there's argument because you can go to, to day seven of creation where God rested. Yep, we see that. We're told God rested. But if God rested, then who's sustaining the universe? Right? The universe can't sustain itself. Somebody has to be uh, making provisions for, for gravity to keep working and the world to keep spinning and the sun to rise. And so, somebody has to make these provisions. And so the question is, does God actually rest or does he not? But Jesus settles the debate. He says in verse 17, my father has been working until now. So, so God has been doing things even in Sabbath rest. God has been working even until now. Now this is good news because even on this Sabbath day, as you rest, as you honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, God is working. God is sustaining... Because God is sustaining the universe, you can rest. Because God is keeping everything functioning as it ought to, you can sit here on a Sunday. You don't have to, you don't have to be thinking about your work and what you've got coming up this week. You can take time and appreciate that God is in control of the universe. But the other thing that we can be thankful for is that while we sit here, and while we sit under the preaching of the word and hear the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, they're saying, God is working out our redemption as we sit and rest. This is the glory of God. And that even as rest is invoked, God is at work. So that's the first thing. He settles a big debate. Second, and this is, this is where the real scandal is here. As Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. What he's doing 
He is claiming that God is his personal father. He's, he has this unique relationship with God the Father Almighty, that he is God's son. And not only does he have that relationship with God in a unique capacity, but they share likeness. That they are same. There is a unity. There is a sameness in the father as there is the son. Now, the Jews would refer to God as a father in a corporate sense. This is something that you see even in, in Isaiah 63. Um, it, it makes reference of this um, where, where they say, For you are our father, like speaking corporately, through Abraham, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, O Lord, our, our, you, O Lord, are our father. That's a lot of our ours. You are our father, our redeemer. From of old is your name. So, so there is this corporate sense where Israelites, where Jews would see, yeah, God is our father in a corporate sense, but no one would dare to claim this personal access as God as my own father. Yet here Jesus says it. He says, my father. Jesus is making the claim that I am the son of God and he shares in his sameness. He shares in his divinity. Now, there's no doubt in our minds. There should be no doubt in our minds. That's exactly what Jesus is saying because this is how the Jews um, process that remark that Jesus made. We see this in verse 18. Um, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, so that was strike one, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there it is. Jesus is saying, I am equal with God. My God, my father, I am his son, the son of man. And they have this unique relationship where they share in the sameness. Now, who on earth would claim to be God? Who on earth would claim to be sameness equal with God? Now, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says there's three kinds of people. You got liars, lunatics, and Lord. That's the only kind of three people that would make this kind of claim. Either a liar who's intentionally trying to, um, to deceive someone into believing that he is something that he's not, right? So a liar, he's deceptive. A lunatic, somebody who's crazy, who thinks that they are actually God, which is absurd, or this person is making a claim that's actually true and they truly are Lord. It's liar, lunatic, or Lord. Now, this, this claim that Jesus make, makes is the truth. Jesus is the Lord. He really is God. Now, this is the primary propositional truth of, of John chapter 5. We heard this all the way back in the prologue. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. There's this, this sameness, this unique connection between God the Father and the Son of God. But Jesus, once again, is saying that I am equal with God. I am God. Now, when Jesus makes a claim like this, there are only two possible responses to this. You can only respond to this claim in one of two ways. Either one, you worship because Jesus truly is God and he's worthy of all honor and all praise. Or two, you reject him. Those are the two, you either receive it or you reject it. Those are the only two responses that you can have. Now, you might reject it in, in apathy and indifference, be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Silly Jesus. Or... 
you might reject it in rage like we see the Pharisees, right? We, we see this escalation of hostility, persecution. Now they want to kill him. Now they want his blood. Now this is the primary reason why Christians are hated in our culture. Christianity is hated in a unique way compared to every other world religion. Because most other world religions, they don't have a leader who claims to be equal with God. You might have a leader who claims a little bit of divinity, but here Jesus is claiming he is God. And if he is God, there are tremendous implications to this reality. And when Christians testify that Jesus is Lord, that means the other gods are not. That means the, the spirit of the age, the spirit of secularism, that's not the God. The government is not God. And so Christians are persecuted. Now, if Jesus were lying, if he were a lunatic or if he were a liar, he would be a blasphemer. And blasphemers, according to Leviticus 24, 15, they deserve the death penalty. They'd be stoned to death, right? They took truth seriously. Unlike our culture at this point, we don't really take the truth that seriously. But in, in, in the Jewish culture, a blasphemer would be put to death. And even with this threat looming, rather than backing down or withdrawing his words or, or tucking away into a corner, Jesus instead leans into it. Jesus pushes against the Pharisees and their threats. He ignores the, the de-escalation tactics that HR tends to give you and say, hey, if you find yourself in conflict, just try to defuse the situation. Jesus is like, no way. The truth is too important for me to back down. And so Jesus steps into this. He steps into the conflict, and actually he expands on this claim that Jesus is God. Now, that's what the rest of this passage is about. And in true preacher fashion, Jesus gives his own three-point sermon about his own identity. He gives a sermon to clarify his relationship to his father. We're going to bust these out. Point number one. Point number one is found in verse 19. Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. This is going back to the equalness, the sameness of the Father and the Son. Look at this, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, and, and the helpful thing that all of Jesus' points are marked by truly, truly. You see, truly, truly, that's where your ears perk up. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. This shows us that Jesus and the father are not only equal, but they are unified. That there's no division between the Father and the Son. Their wills are the same. Their desires are the same. Jesus is delighted to do all that he sees the Father doing. They share the same will. They share the same actions. What Jesus sees the Father's, Father do, he also does, and he cannot and refuses to and is not interested in doing anything contrary to it. Now, some might say, you look at this and say, well, if Jesus only does what the Father does, does that really mean he's equal with God? That's a great question. This is where you get into the economy of the Trinity, okay? If they're really ontologically equal, if they are equally God, then why is it that Jesus subjects himself to the Father? This is the, the humility that we see of Jesus. It's not that Jesus isn't equal to God. It's, it's that Jesus demonstrates his, his humility and how he relates to the Father as the Son. You see this clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. We're told, 
Uh, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he does have equality. He doesn't, he doesn't consider it a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death. What we see here is Jesus, out of his humility, doing what the Father is doing. He's honoring God his Father in submitting to him. Now, this, this word of submission is something, it's an icky word in our culture, but, but submission is a way of honor. We submit to Christ because he is Lord. We honor him as Lord. Wives, you, you submit to your husband as a way to honor them, to show respect for them. Children, you submit to your parents to honor them as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, you submit to the Lord your God to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So there's, submission is a language of honor. It's a language of love. And because the father loves the son, the father shows the son all that he's doing. He doesn't keep secrets. He, he demonstrates, he shows, this is what I'm like, this is what I'm doing. And Jesus imitates the father. He mimics the father so that humanity can see the love of the father. Now, this is why we see the healings and the miracles and, and various things that happen throughout the gospel accounts. Jesus is demonstrating the things that the Father does. Jesus is demonstrating that God is redeeming things. And he tells us in verse 21 that there's more to come. He says, greater works then these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is equal with God and does all the father does. That's point one. Point number two, because of Jesus' humility, the father bestows honor upon him. Because Jesus loves the Father and submits to him and takes the place of humility, God meets that with honor. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It's because the father is pleased with the son's work of imitation that he gives him authority, like, and big time authority, big boy authority. It says that God isn't the one who judges, but it's Jesus who judges. This is like um, the father who, who watches his child grow up and mature and gain responsibility and understand the craft, right? The father who has a, a successful business, it's thriving, it's growing, and, and it's, it's, it's a huge inheritance, and he's seen that the son has proven his worth. The son is doing the thing that he's supposed to do. He's, he's trustworthy. He's reliable. And so now he is signing over the company to his son's name. This is what, what's going on. The father hands over the authority to Jesus. But it's not just a business and making widgets and gadgets. But the business that Jesus gets himself into is the business of judging all the people of the whole world. We're introduced to Jesus as the judge Judge Jesus. And so the Father delegates this authority to Jesus, which he will use to judge, so that 
all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. We sang this today with Trinitarian worship. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Spirit, three in one. Right? God gives the honor back to Jesus in his humility so that he too would be honored by all people. And he says this, this, this is really important for us to see. It is impossible to honor the Father while dishonoring the Son. You cannot honor the Father. So this is why like uh, vague New Age um, uh, sort of general spirituality that says I, I worship God, but there's no real clarity on who this God is. Um, this is why that kind of worship is not real worship. It is not honoring to God. The only way we can honor God is through honoring the Son. And all who honor the Son, and by honoring the Son, honor the Father, all who honor the Son will be raised from the dead and given life as the judge sees fit. Right? And it's fitting because Jesus himself is life. He, he possesses life in himself. And verse 21 says he gives it to who he will. Now, the question is, how do people honor the Son? How, how are we, if, if, if our desire is to honor God the Father, and the only way we can do that is by honoring the Son, how do we go about honoring the Son? Well, it's clear in verse 24. Jesus tells us what it looks like to honor, honor the, the Son and honor the, the, the Father. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. To honor the Son is to hear Christ's words. To hear, to honor the Son is to believe he is the Son of God, sent by God the Father. Now this, this mentality goes against the Pharisees' views. The, the ways that Pharisees see um, the world, the way they make sense of their religion is that the way that you earn honor, the way that you gain um, notoriety, the way that you gain approval from God and from man is by the things that you do or the things that you don't do. Th this is why they have a bunch of rules, a bunch of lists. Here's what we do, here's what we don't do. 39 rules on the Sabbath. Here's what we do, here's what we don't do. And in their view, their honor is a product of their own obedience. And in this, Jesus kind of pokes at this later on, but, but what comes out of this is not a true honor from the Lord. What comes out of this is an honor that comes from man, and God doesn't need praises from man to be glorious. God doesn't need praises to, to be who he is. He is who he is. But if the Pharisees don't have that man-made honor, they've got nothing. They've got nothing to boast in, and so they, they become people of, of the rules, of, of this here, here's the assignment. We've got to do it the right way. And when you, when you live that way, when, when your righteousness, when your honor, when your, where your clout comes from the things that you do and you don't do, it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, um, you boast in yourself um, if you're doing well, but on the other hand, it's, it's a, if you fail, it's a, quite a miserable existence. You never are quite enough, and you feel that, and you feel like, man, no matter what I do, I can never, I can never tip the scales enough 
to gain the approval of God, never, never to be honored, to, to receive what I'm looking for. And Jesus tells us, what you are after, the, the honor of being endowed with life comes only by believing in the words and the works of himself. Jesus says, you cannot rest in your own good works. You cannot place stock in your track record uh, because it's, it, it's up and down. It fluctuates. Your standard is likely not God's standard. If, you're, if you have a standard and you're succeeding at it, that means that your standard is not God's standard. The way that you are honored and bestowed with eternal life is by resting on the work of Jesus. It's to be justified by faith in Jesus, and this faith that God gives us produces good works, that you are saved for good works, as Ephesians tells us. James says in chapter two that, that faith without works is dead. That, that faith is the thing that justifies, and this justifying faith will be accompanied by work. So it's not that the, the religious leaders are bad or wrong in saying that there's a certain kind of life that is produced in honoring God, but they're missing the heart. They're missing the core. They're missing the main point that Jesus is God. Now, it's on the basis of faith that Jesus will judge all the people of the world. And this brings us to point number three. Judgment will come. The day of judgment will come, and it will determine your eternity. You see this in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tomb will hear his voice and come out. Those who will have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We see this here. An hour is coming and it is now here. Judgment is nigh. And this judgment will determine what happens with you for eternity. Now, when we talk about judgment, oftentimes people get kind of squirmish about this idea. Um, it's sort of off-putting. Like, like somehow a loving God and a, a just judge is incompatible. But, but you have to understand, to truly love, there has to be a sense of justice. If you truly love something, there has to be a consequence for the things that defile that which you love. And so it's not, a, uh, it's not an intellectual dishonesty thing to say that God, God is a loving God and that God also judges justly. It's important to see that these th two things are held together, but oftentimes it just doesn't compute with our brains. We see judgment as a bad thing. It's a scary thing. It seems a little extreme, like, whoa, God, just chill out for a second. Now, it's true that if you are not a Christian, the idea of judgment should be very uncomfortable. Because if you're relying on your works to stand before the throne of God, you will find yourself wanting. 
you will find that you have written a check that you simply cannot cash because the wages of sin is death, right? If I'm responsible for my sin, then my future is not very bright. But for the Christian, we have a completely different perspective on judgment. We, and we have to fight for this. We have to fight to understand judgment in this sense that, that judgment is a glorious comfort. Judgment is a glorious comfort because what judgment means is that one day the evil that is plaguing the cosmos, the people that God loves, will find its expiration date. One day, God will put an end to all the misery and brokenness and sin sickness of this world, and he will restore everything to how it was intended to be. Now, two times in this passage, Jesus says that the hour is coming, the day is coming, and it's even here, where the Son will execute this judgment, that he will cry out. His voice will ring through the, the, the corridors of the cosmos, and all of the dead will come out of their tombs. That's the kind of command that Jesus has in his voice. All of the dead will get up, and the dead will be sorted. Jesus will sort the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, believer from unbeliever. Now you see this when Jesus says, listen, we'll, we'll, um, those who have done evil or those who have dishonored the Son and the Father, those who have rejected Jesus' claims, they will face the resurrection of judgment, that they'll be raised and sent to a, an eternity of judgment. Very unpleasant. And those who have heard, those who have heard Jesus' proclamations, those who have believed and have found life in his name, and those who have done good as a result of true faith, they enter into the resurrection of life. Now, this is where the marvel the big marvel that Jesus kind of pointed forward to earlier in verse 20 comes from. He says, you'll see things greater than this. You'll marvel at them. It'll be for your, for your marveling, for your amazement that this will happen. I mean, it's significant that Jesus was granted authority. That, that's marvelous in itself. It's significant that Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is God. That's a marvel. That's, that's incredible. But, but really what the true marvel is, is that anybody at all will receive eternal life. That, that's the true marvel. Because if you really understand who you are, if you know yourself to be a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and grace, if you know that we are all evildoers, that we are all immoral, that we are all adulterers, that we are all cowards and greedy and selfish, this tendency of sin within us that disqualifies us from entering into God's presence, we know that it, we don't deserve this. If we point to our works, there, there's nothing of confidence for us to stand upon. The marvel that Jesus is talking about is that people, some people, can pass through judgment and enter into eternal life. Now, how is that possible? How is it that Christians have an optimistic outlook on judgment? The reason is because Jesus took your place. That Jesus was judged on the cross for your sins. Romans 8 tells us that he was condemned in the flesh, right? Um, instead of you standing on trial before God, 
Jesus did that already at the cross. And he was condemned in the flesh. All of your sin, all of your, all of your guilt, all of your uncleanness was placed upon him. And it was nailed to the cross and dealt with. Now, not only does Jesus take our place, but Jesus gives us his. This is what Luther called the great exchange. He takes our sinfulness, and Jesus gives us, he credits us with his righteousness. Now, this is what it looks like to be justified by faith. This is what happens in this moment. In faith, I believe I'm justified. My record goes to Jesus, and it's dealt with on the cross. His record is credited to me. I am now, in God's eyes, viewed as righteous. Now, the only way this can happen is by hearing the message of the Son, by believing the proclamation that Jesus is God. See, the only way that Jesus could pay for the sins of the whole world is if he is God, if God himself were to bear the wages of sin in our place. This is why this passage is so significant. Without Jesus being God, there is no atonement for all believers The way that we can have an optimistic outlook on judgment, to even be excited and find comfort in the reality that that Jesus will come and judge, is knowing that we are covered by his blood. This is the only way. There, There is no optimism outside of this, folks. There's no way to look at judgment ahead and be excited about it unless you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Now, if you are a non-Christian in this room this morning, this this might seem like a fire and brimstone sermon, and maybe it is a little bit, but this is the words of Jesus. This is truth. And, And because this is true, I want to urgently and lovingly point you to Jesus. There is no hope outside of him. There is no optimism outside of him. There is no bright future outside of Christ. There is no life outside of him. Come to Jesus. By God's grace, you can pass from death to life just like the saints have done. Christian, don't forget that that was your story. At one time you were dead in your sins and transgressions, but because of God's grace met you, he has transferred you from darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son, granting you eternal life. And in that moment, God changes our hearts, but he also changes our response to Jesus. Where we go from rejecting him or being indifferent from him or even just being hostile and rage maniacs, And it's happened. The Apostle Paul is one of them. To being people who see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, and worship him rightly. How you respond to this claim that Jesus is God will determine your eternity. But not only does it determine your eternity, it changes your life right now. As James says, faith without works is dead. So a true saving faith is going to change the way that you live and be in this world. So let me, in a passage that's heavy heavy with propositional truths, let me bring it home with, with a few, and there's several more that we could really extract from this. A few applications from this text. I'll work down. Number three. 
Christians, because time is running out, you must live on mission with loving urgency. If you truly love your unbelieving friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, you will have a sense of compassionate urgency. And I think this is one of the things that judgment, this awareness that there is a, there is a date set. We don't know what it is. Jesus doesn't know. The Father, Father knows what it is, but there's a date set where Jesus will return. And because there is a date set, there's a, a hard deadline, there ought to be an urgency in us to live in community and on mission, to make Jesus known in our city. And, and, and if you don't have that, I'm wondering if you really totally understand what it is that Jesus came to this world to do for you. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. For, for God so loved your neighbor, he sent you. For God so loved your coworker, he sent you. There should be loving urgency. Number two, as we see Jesus and his humility that's marked in Philippians 2, we too should imitate Jesus' humility. So the, the whole idea of, of Jesus sees what the Father does and, and those are the only things that he does, we too, Christians, should be people who imitate Jesus. This takes place in a lot of different ways. But one of the primary things is that we imitate Jesus in our humility. Now, here's, here's the promise. Just as Jesus was humble and, the, and, and God bestowed honor upon him, he granted him authority, so too do we receive this promise in James chapter 4 when it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Christian, um, when we go about our, our life in community and on mission, we do not do so with a swagger because we're all good, because we kept the rules. We're not the Pharisees. We're not like them. Our righteousness is not of ourselves. We have this true humility. Our boast is in the Lord. And our Lord is our commander-in-chief. The Lord is the one who tells us what to do. This is what it looks like to hear his words and to believe that God is the one who sent him, to live like they're true. And so we ought to imitate Jesus in his humility. And this last one might seem paradoxical, but this is what it is to hold the mystery of Christ, is that in our humility, we never back down from bearing witness to Jesus. See, in our culture, we're told, like, the nice thing to do is to just, you know, be toe the line. Don't ruffle feathers. Don't make people upset. Um, try to be Switzerland. Just be neutral. There is no neutrality. Neutrality is a myth. Like, there, there's only two options. There's only two kinds of responses. You either worship Jesus or you reject him. There's no middle ground. And because this is true, we never back down from bearing witness to Jesus. We never let someone else's discomfort with the propositional truth claim that Jesus is Lord silence us. Now here's why. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men will, also, will I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father 
who is in heaven. Friends, we are living in a war for the truth. And our duty as Christians is to stand on God's word and be heralds of the truth. Yes, the gospel. We proclaim the truth of the gospel, that, Jesus, that, that, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of, of Christ. But the truth is not just limited to salvation. It extends to everything in this world, everything in this cosmos. And we ought to bear witness to Jesus and his truth. We cannot back down. Now, this is a high calling to live in communion on on mission with urgency, yet so often we fail to do it. To walk humbly before our God, yet so often we insist on our own way instead of God's way. To, To not back down from bearing witness to who Jesus is, to proclaiming the truth, but so often we we tuck our tails and we run like cowards. Where is our hope then? Christians, this table that we are about to come to bears witness to who Jesus is. See, as we often fail to realize who Jesus is and bear witness to that reality, the table stands to proclaim what at times we cannot or what we do not. It proclaims that Jesus is the one who entered into the world, who put on flesh and dwelt among us, that we would see the glory of God in his face. And putting on flesh, the reason he put on flesh was that it would, so that it could be broken and his blood could be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So this table reminds us, yes, we are in need. We, we need God to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. He, he must deal with our sins. And here at the table, we find the proclamation that once and for all, Jesus has paid the, the price. But we also find help. That as Jesus is present here in this meal, as we take the body and the bread and and as we eat it, the mystery of the table, God's provision, and it's so weird, a small little nugget and a little, this should not satisfy us in any sort of physical sense. Like you're gonna have to go home and eat lunch here pretty soon. Like this won't fill you up. But in a spiritual sense, this meal fills us up. It reminds us that Christ is with us. He's in us. The spirit of God is at work. And he helps us in this calling of our life that we would live righteously before our God. Because we have been justified by faith that we can go and do the good works that God has prepared for us to do. And knowing that we will enter into eternal life. Not because of our merit, but because of the work of Christ. Christian, let us rejoice and worship and give thanks and leave here as changed people today. Father, thank you for supplying every need that we have. In our brokenness, in our, our finiteness, in our inability, our fickleness, all of the things that, that we find ourselves lacking in, you have provided um, above and beyond, grace upon grace in the person and work of Christ. Lord, we, we thank you that because of what Jesus has done, we have a bright future, that we have passed through judgment uh, because Christ was judged in the flesh. The sin was condemned in the flesh and we have received his righteousness. Help us, Lord, to live like that's true. Help us to take the, the indicatives and live out of the imperatives that your name would be great among the nations, that people would look at your people and give you praise for what you, the things that you do that only you can do. 
We ask this, God, for your glory, for the advancement of your mission in our city, and for the joy of all people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.